on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man, and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I'm sure you're probably wondering what those two scenes had to do with each other. And as we get into the message, I'm sure that as uh, you're aware of the details of what just happened in that moment, uh, you'll see why one fits together with the other. But until then, we're just going to start with where we're at with things that are uphill. Uh, how many of you have ever been mountain climbing? Anybody, like, at least just going down a path or uh, perhaps a trail or maybe you climbed the side of a hill and that was your mountain. You ever had that experience? My, my wife and I and our kids went to Utah uh, a few years ago and one of the things that we wanted to do was uh, climb this. Uh, it was a part of a mountain that uh, had a feature on it that looked like the Great Wall of China embedded on the side of the mountain. And uh, our kids were very excited about making that trek and so we all started at the base of the, of the mountain, and it, and it went up, uh, I would say, probably 800 to 1,000 feet easily. And all of a sudden, they're just gone. And my wife and I are thinking, we're a little old for that pace. And uh, so we just kind of went at our own rate up the mountain, going through switchbacks and trying to work our way up to the path that went along uh, the top of that Great Wall of China feature that was so unique about that part of that, um, that, that particular mountain. And as we're going up it, we realize that our youngest son, who at the time was about 10 years old, 
was going to be going as quickly as he could along the path that was right on the side of a cliff uh, to try to keep up with his older brother. That escalated our attempt to get up to the top of the mountain as quickly as we could, only to realize that along the way, uh, we were just too old for that stuff. And we just prayed a lot that the kid, we wouldn't hear somebody a scream and then a kid going off the side of the cliff. Uh, When we got up there and we saw just um, how perilous it could be, uh, it, it didn't do much to, to uh, uh, eliminate our sense of anxiety about the situation. But as it ended, um, all three kids are still around, and the one, in, in the one that I'm thinking of for sure uh, was up here as one of the actors. So all's well that ends well. But on the, on the way up, uh, it, was, um, it was a little frightening, very uncertain, and we had no idea uh, whether or not uh, it, would, it would end like it needed to. And I'm guessing that there are some uphill challenges that you may be facing. And I, I know in my own life, there is at least one facet of my, my life here on earth that has an uphill element to it. it, it it's either an economic uh, concern, it has to do perhaps with uh, my job and things that are relative to what we're trying to accomplish here at First Christian, or it could be within any of the relationships that I have with the people in my family or even beyond that. Uh, There's no shortage of things and circumstances that call you and I to uphill challenges. And given that that's the case, I think it's appropriate uh, as we move into the Easter season to look at the things that went on in Jesus' life that had uphill elements that uh, really uh, have to do with the last uh, several hours of his life here on earth. And many of the places that, uh, that, that, are, that, are, that are depicted within the gospel story are actually in elevated places that when Jesus got there, there was a lot of struggle to get to that, that particular location. And the upper room, uh, notwithstanding uh, in that. Now, if... Um, if, if you can relate to any of those aspects, or even if you can't, just being the church together, uh, I think, will have some bearing on our interest in, in what's going on. If you look at the graphic for a moment, um, just go ahead and keep that up there. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's got several different actions that are occurring. Um, there is a person at the top who is looking down towards those who are still traveling up the hill. And if you look very carefully, you'll see that connecting each of those individuals, with the exception of the last person, uh, is a rope. And there is a process that involves the progression of everyone up that hill together. And if that's not clue enough, then what I want to do for the next few minutes is just look at the cement that was at work in this scene that enabled 12 people in a very precarious set of circumstances that were getting ready to unfold. That 12 people, because of the cohesion that was there and their own uphill struggles, that 12 people, 20 centuries, 21 centuries later, have resulted in a cumulative effect of two or three billion people being impacted 
by this event. Isn't that staggering? And when Jesus called the disciples to go to the upper room, there were some things that happened in that room that were formative, that shaped their lives, and had a lot to do with them being able to accomplish that staggering feat that they've done to make the Christian faith such a widespread presence here on planet Earth. And so the upper room is the beginning place of the bonding that needed to occur for Jesus' disciples in order for them to get done what they needed to get done. And as a pastor for uh, a very long time, more, more years than I, I care to say, I think about the people who come into the church, who begin the, the journey, and I realize that along the way, they're going to have their own struggles, and they're going to need help. And I also know that there are people who are outside of church today who maybe at one point in their lives came to church, but they decided that their vertical relationship with God that they were having in their own home was sufficient for the task. And so many people have disconnected from the church, but have not disconnected from their belief in God. That said, a lot of those people are of no, have because of that, no great effect on the lives of people around them because, of their, because it's just a, a private vertical relationship. And the way God designed us, he designed us so that we could help one another along the way. And uh, it reminds me of a couple of stories. One of them is about a young boy who was given the responsibility of taking a cart and pushing it up a hill and it's laden pretty heavily that it creates a great deal of strain on his part in order to get it to the, to the top of the hill that, that, um, that, that, that he's supposed to arrive at. And as this is going on, a, uh, a bystander is watching, and he's uh, increasingly becoming concerned about this, this boy pushing this cart up. And he, he walks up to him, and he, he tells him, he said, um, uh, you know, that, that cart looks like it's, a real struggle for you to get up the hill. Would you like some help? And the, and the boy said, sure. And then as the, as the gentleman's helping him push the cart up the hill, he says, now, um, who, who told you that you had to push this cart up like you are? And he, he said, well, my, my father said, this is what I needed to do. And indignant uh, as, the, as the gentleman was, he had, to, he, had to, he had to ask the kid, well, why is it that your father, what kind of father for that matter, uh, what kind of abusive parent uh, would do that to their kid? And the kid, the, the kid responded by saying, well, my father told me that um, I needed to push this cart up the hill. And I said, well, how am I going get to it, get it up the hill by myself? He said, don't worry. Some sucker will come along and they will help you uh, get the thing to the top of the hill. Well, there are people that are drawn into things that um, perhaps on a human level have a very limited purpose and they're drawn into it for reasons that maybe aren't the best. But there is one experience that we're drawn into that there is no false pretense. There is a clear understanding of what this is all about and why it is that we need to help each other along the way. And that reminds me of another story about, a, um, about an experience I had right after I got married. We spent our honeymoon uh, in Florida, and we were sitting in a hot tub. And the reason I know we were sitting in the hot tub is because the, the news of the person uh, 
who was uh, in that area, and we were all kind of sitting in this jacuzzi together, and he said, uh, did you hear what happened in San Francisco? And we're like, no, we're not aware of anything happening in San Francisco. It's our honeymoon. I'm not watching the news. Of course, my wife said, no, what? What? I'm interested. And I'm like, you're supposed to be interested in the honeymoon experience. But she had to ask, and he had to say. And what he said actually was very somber and, 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 and disturbing. And it was the news that uh, in October of 1989, there was a, a very powerful earthquake in San Francisco, and many lives were lost, and there was a lot of destruction. But one of the images on the, on the television that really captured, I think, everyone's imagination was when the, uh, the, the, the double-decker bridge uh, called the Nimitz uh, collapsed in on itself and the cars underneath it, well over 40, uh, ended up uh, just, just being, being literally smashed. And there were, um, you know, these lives that were lost as a result of that. There were inquiries that occurred. And eventually, structural engineers, uh, on hindsight, evaluated the situation. And they said, the problem uh, that, that we see is that from the standpoint of the vertical supports, the up and down supports, uh, there really were no issues. But when the, when, when the bridge started to uh, move back and forth, it was the lack of sufficient horizontal support that led to it rocking and then collapsing in on itself. And it's interesting, as many of us, when we come to the Lord, we perhaps feel, we start to feel pretty comfortable and pretty good about that vertical relationship that we have with God. And even our architecture here is designed to, 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 to make us aware of, of larger realities that are above and beyond us that have to do with the person of God. But the problem a lot of times centers in our effectiveness as believers and our overall impact as a church when it comes to the horizontal dimension. And Jesus understood profoundly that this was going to be an issue. And as uh, Jesus is processing in his own mind, in his own strategy, what he wants to do about it, he knew that these 12 people and some others who were following along, that eventually they were going to be the ones who would change the world. It's a staggering thought, isn't it? To realize you've invested three years and we've got to make it count. And there's some uncertainty about the level of commitment that's in play here with these individuals. And that uncertainty is really going to come out as each of them starts to abandon the cause as persecution and as their world completely unravels when Jesus is crucified. And he knew that if all that was getting ready to happen and they were going to change the world, that their lives would need to be cemented together somehow. Now, how is it that those disciples found their lives cemented in such a fashion that in the aftermath of what is being dramatized during the Easter season, in the aftermath of that, they were able to go out and just broadcast to the whole world that Jesus is Lord, do so courageously, even at the expense of their own lives, What was it that glued them to the cause and to one another so that they could could do what needed to be done? And what is it that glues us together as a church 
so that we can be strong and we can be healthy and one another within the body can find strength in, 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 in those relationships. And this is what I think Jesus had on his mind whenever the upper room experience occurred. So if you have your message notes, uh, there are five things that Jesus knew that were experiences that you and I have that do have direct bearing on how, how strong any relationship is that we have. But in this case, the relationship that we have as believers with one another. So here's the first one. If you listen carefully to the narrative when you saw the disciples up here, coming from Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 and following, uh, it's, we're told that Jesus instructed the disciples to go to, um, uh, to, to go to a certain place and to prepare for the Passover meal. Now, in the mind of any Jewish person at that time, the Passover meal was defining. It was the one event that had to happen so that God could liberate his people from the bondage of Pharaoh and call them into, uh, into being as their own nation in the promised land. It's pretty dramatic stuff. Uh, their whole identity centered on God doing that. And one of the features of that experience um, had to do with the encounter that Pharaoh had with Moses. And this went back and forth, this exchange of Moses saying, you got to let us go worship, otherwise God's going to do bad things. And Pharaoh and Moses went through this ordeal where uh, the water was turned to blood, there was a plague of flies, there's a plague of gnats, and there was um, a variety of other very, very uh, national events that occurred that, that, that should have frightened Pharaoh into thinking that he was dealing with a God beyond his power. The one event, because Pharaoh was indifferent to all of this stuff that God was trying to point out, the one event that led Pharaoh to say, go and get out of here, was the, was the, was the announcement by Moses when he said that the angel of death is going to come and, and kill your firstborn male. But the people that would place the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would be spared. And all the Israelites went through that ritual as they were instructed. The angel of death spared their homes, whereas in the background they heard all of this crying and they knew that God had done something very powerful to ensure their deliverance. And as this story is played time and time again, it's commemorated in an annual ritual called the Passover. And Jesus wanting to take that opportunity and to show how in many ways that story is a signpost to him, also wanted to take the celebration of the Passover and allow that meal together with the disciples to be a defining moment in their lives for the even greater things that are yet to come for the deliverance of, and salvation of, of, of many, many people beyond just that group that was in Israel to begin with. So if you capture all of that, the first thing that Jesus did was he had them serve together. And so I want to go back to the first point just real quickly. And that is when people serve together, they connect. 
if you've been a part of this church for a while and you've done some kind of serving activity or you've volunteered with other people, uh, you build a camaraderie. And there's something about those little groups of serving uh, um, uh, pockets within the body here that, that build uh, a, a sense of love and, 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 and unique experience when they're called to the task. And it could be people in our children's wing or people outside who are working with um, uh, the food pantry and everything in between. Now, for me, I, this really hits home because when I think about doing something with another person, I know that when, when we're doing a project or we're doing something together, it becomes a very meaningful thing. And this, um, th- this holds true not only in the church, but at home. A, a couple of weeks ago, my son Stephen said, Dad, don't you think we need to um, uh, put... Uh, an Ethernet infrastructure into our home. And when he said that, I'm like, that's a lot of big words, and that sounds like a scary project. But he had in his mind that we needed to have, we needed to have connectivity to uh, all, the, all the parts of the house with an with a Ethernet cable. And I'm thinking about plaster walls and drilling holes and all of this stuff. And he's just thinking, it's got to be done and it's got to be done yesterday. So I thought, okay, this is something he and I can do together. And we kind of made our plan and worked our plan and planned our work and made a lot of mistakes in the process, learned a lot in the process. Um, And as we were doing this together, we probably invested maybe 15, 20 hours uh, maybe more on that. I know I've invested about 150 bucks in a project that I didn't see coming. Uh, but all of that happened, and what it resulted in was just, uh, just, just, just uh, another moment that he and I were able to have together where we could just bond. And, of course, we felt very close in that moment. And with any teenager, uh, you know, they have their priorities and every parent has theirs. But this is where our lives intersected. And I could tell that it was, it was very meaningful to him because his brother Christian called him on the phone last night. And he said, well, what, you, what, what have you been up to? And the first thing out of his mouth was, well, Dad and I put a, we put a new uh, Ethernet infrastructure into our house. And Christian's like, huh? So then he went on to explain. But it was something that was so important to him and so meaningful that um, it's worth underscoring that when you do things together, you connect. And I, and I knew this from personal experience. When my father, who had lung cancer, was, was, was on his deathbed, and we were, we were talking, and the things that came up in conversation that I think pointed to the bond that he and I had all had to do with activities, focused activities that we had done together over time. And uh, knowing that had we never had that opportunity, we probably would have, would have not have had that relationship. And Jesus saw just in the basic thing of going and preparing for the Passover that they would be collaborating and working together on something that would be so memorable that they would remember that event every Sunday after that as they worship the Lord. Let's continue because I think there's more within this embedded in this experience uh, that, that we have to take a look at. Because the scripture tells us um, that um, Jesus not only understood that when people serve together, they connect. But in verses 21 and 22, 
It says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating. And I'm just going to stop right there. Because there's something about food and people and glue. I'm not talking about pasty white bread, but I'm talking about what happens when families or individuals sit down and they have a meal together. If you look at the family, uh, this I do know. There's a lot of data that centers around the concept of families having a meal together uh, in, the e- you know, in, in the evening or at some point in the day where they turn off all their electronic devices and uh, everything that would be a digital distraction uh, gets laid to, to the side and they're focused on just each other the events of the day, and it sort of suspends everything else so that that moment is there together. And, you know, hopefully in in this context, you know, that that's happening. And when it does, there's something even more connecting uh, that I believe occurs, and that's when uh, a family joins hands and they say a prayer together. And there's nothing like it. it's been said that 80% of the people who have gone through a divorce, when they were surveyed about this aspect of their life together, 80% of them said, we never spend any time sitting down and having a meal together. We were just, we were too busy. And uh, if you could take that and apply it in a completely different setting, and, and uh, when, when, when they were evaluating people who were uh, merit scholars, and they were saying, how did you get to this place where, um, where, where you've excelled so well. And they, they, they had different uh, uh, economic classes. They had different races. They had different um, um, social groups. And, you know, just the whole demographic breakdown uh, spanning the rich to, richest to the poorest. And they said there really is no one feature that says this is the common thread that explains the reason for why they're there, except for one. And that was that each of those individuals, in their experience with their family, regularly spent time eating a meal together. And there's nothing like having that cement in place that makes you feel secure. It makes you feel like you belong. And it gives you a peace of mind that you can't quite capture if it's always just been you versus the world. And when Jesus broke the bread with his disciples, he was concentrating on what that would mean for their connection to one another. When people eat together, they unite. And I think it's a pretty fantastic thing. uh, And I see frequently here at church, whenever we have people who have come to the church and they've had a funeral or, or they've had one elsewhere, and invariably, they're invited to a funeral dinner uh, by uh, ladies in our church. Oftentimes, we'll, we'll host that for them. If their worship or if, if, the, if, the, if the memorial service is here, oftentimes it's somber. Sometimes there's a little bit of celebrating, but there are, no, there, there are tears and there are, are uh, experiences of grief and uh, just very somber. But when people go down to the fellowship hall and they enjoy a meal, it's, it's just, there's, just a, there's just a sea change in, in their attitude. They go from, of course, being in a, a moment of grief to a moment of celebration, a, a moment of, uh, of really just enjoying the fact that even though it's a bad set of circumstances, 
nonetheless, it called them together for conversation. And I, I, I know that being uh, present during a time where they're eating together um, and, and having that conversation around food is just the one denominator that makes that happen. And I'm going to comment more on that in just a second. But I just want to make you aware that in, in, in what Jesus was doing there, he was building a team of people that would have each other's back, that would be aware when another person was going uphill, and would have the wherewithal and the desire to help them up as they were going through a difficult time. And as Jesus was forming that in their being through this cementing event, um, he understood that even though they were enjoying a meal up to that point, there were some ugly realities that had to be faced. And so the scripture tells us that Jesus uh, said that one of you is going to betray me. And the, 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 the mood and the temperature of the room just went from hot to freezing cold. And uncertainty began to pour down upon the disciples. And they just were very concerned that they were going to be one of the ones who would betray him. And as he said, the one who dips uh, their hand in the cup with me, that's the person. And at that moment, Judas Iscariot dipped his bread the same time Jesus did. But what's churning in everybody's mind is the thought. It couldn't have been Judas. Why not? Well, let me ask you. Would you give your hard-earned money to somebody that you, do, you don't trust? Would you just say, I've got, look, I've got $10,000 or five or 500 and I want to give it to you to take care of. Do you mind doing that? Well, I'm sure every one of us in the room would say, I may do that, but I'm not going to do that with somebody that I know isn't absolutely 100% trustworthy. And who was the handler of the money in that group? Judas. And it just went from disbelief to shock to fear to grief. And as ugly as that set of circumstances was, there actually were good things that could emerge out of it. Because when people grieve together, barriers are broken. Now, have you ever, in your own experience, been so downtrodden that tears literally came out of your eyes? And you're so grief-struck in that moment that you just, nothing, you, nothing really mattered except the pain and the grief of, the, of, of that. It literally laid your soul bare. And then have you had that happen around someone who maybe has had a similar experience? And as they saw your pain, their pain surfaced and their, their tears came up. And then all of a sudden, there was nothing else that mattered except that at a deeper level, when your soul is laid bare, that you connect with that person because their tears and your, tear, your tears were at the very gut level of, of your existence here on earth. And I've had those moments personally of tears with other people. 
And I know you have as well. And when that happens, it, it brings people closer. My family has had some fragmentation going on. Go figure, there are 11 kids on my mom's side of the family, 11 on my dad's side of the family. Surprising, occasionally they don't always get along. Well, there's a couple of them who just, they had a party in the ways, and that was it. And it, because they were connected to their own family and our families to theirs, it created uh, a lot of friction and a lot of pain. And there was a, a relative who died, and these families came together in that moment, and they hadn't really spent any time together in years. And it was amazing how through these things that I've mentioned up to this point, but especially through the shedding of tears, that there was a healing going on and there was a reconnecting going on that's lasted to this day. And this has been at least five or six years, if not more, that this happened. And it, it, it just, it's just mind-boggling that it took that to bring everyone together. But it was refreshing to go back to Illinois and have a cousin come over who I hadn't seen in years. And he said, I heard you were in town and I just made sure that I put the brakes on everything and I came to be with you. And it was so special and I just felt closer to that person than I had ever felt. And Jesus knew all the tears that were emerging starting then and the grief that was churning in hearts that there was a way that he could work that together for good. And not only when people grieve together are barriers broken down, but there's something else that happened, and it doesn't end with just grief. And that's what I like about the telling of this story, is as they began to move away from grief, they began to focus on something other than themselves. And it was what the table was supposed to be about in the richest sense of the word. And that is when people share communion together, offenses turn to acceptance. It's one of the reasons why in our tradition, along with baptism, having the Lord's Supper every Sunday is so critical to our lives together. And do you know why that is? Because every time I take communion, and I know you take communion, you're thinking, Lord, thank you for forgiving me for my sins. Thank you, Lord, that the shame that I had going into this is shame that the blood of your son is covered. And you are very humbled by what you know is transpiring in the observing of the bread and the cup. And you realize that had it not been for that blood shed, you would not be here. You would not be able to have a conversation with God. You would not experience his forgiven. And you would not have the heavy burden of shame lifted off of your shoulders. And as you're really basking in that awareness... Maybe you stop and you look around at the people within the church. And then all of a sudden you spot that person that you had a disagreement with. That person who either you offended them or worse from your point of view, they offended you. And as you saw them, your first thought was bitterness. But then you realized, what did I just do? I just drank a cup of of juice, and I ate a piece of bread that reminded me of just how bitter God could be for the offenses that I've had against him, and they're a lot greater. 
And how humbling it is for us to realize that in that moment of wanting to harbor and perhaps revel in our own bitterness to come to the conclusion that we have to forgive. And there's nothing that makes the body of Christ work better than the understanding that it is forgiveness and grace that enables this whole cross-section of people, regardless of wealth or poverty, regardless of gender or age or race or, or, or social status, something very special happens in a church where things, where people are drawn to be a part of something that by all other bases of logic, they would have no justification for And it centers around this table. And this table says to you and I, every week, one overriding phrase. But before I tell you what that phrase is, I want to ask you a question. Maybe you've come from a tradition where you've been taught, we don't don't observe the Lord's Supper, uh, but once a month, once a quarter, because if you do it too much, it might get old. Or we might lose the significance of it. So we just have it for just that amount of time. Now I don't want to disrespect anybody's tradition. But I do want to say this. Perhaps that happens to you. And if it does, maybe you should focus on this. What if I told, okay, what if I told my wife once a week, I love you. And then the next week I said, I said again, I love you. And do you think after the third week she's going to say, you know, I get tired of hearing that. Once you, once you change it up and do it like twice a month or once a month where it really has great meaning. Or what if somebody said to you, I love you, but they would only say it perhaps once a week and then, then they would say, no, I don't want to say it too much because, you know, if I say it too much, it won't have any meaning. I don't think there's a person in the room who when somebody says they, they are loved by somebody um, that, that they know is genuine, is going to say, please don't do that. They're going to say, thank you. That's, uh, that's the most wonderful thing you've said to me all day. And every time we meet around the Lord's table, it is God broadcasting to each of us, no matter who you are or what you done, you've done, I love you. And I don't know about you, but I can't hear that enough from God. And I can't proclaim it enough knowing the significance of what that means for a person who is so unlike God on so many levels. Here's the last thing, and maybe this will be kind of fun. When the scripture tells us that when they got done, they sang a hymn and they left. Not sure how many hymns they sung, probably just like one. We have a closing hymn. They had a closing hymn. Maybe that's where we get the idea from. But... Have you ever been in a group of people and they started singing and you're like, I enjoy watching you sing, but I'm not going to sing because I can't sing. But somehow you got caught up in it and you didn't care about yourself and nobody cared about themselves and everybody sang and it was just awesome. Nobody was recording it, so nobody cared. And when you did that, it like just changed the whole mood. And as it did, you're thinking, wow, I would just love to bottle this experience. Well, every Sunday for worship, we sing. And some of us sing, some of us 
move our lips. Some of us, maybe we just stand there like that. If you are not singing, you are missing out on something. The scripture tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people. And as you're singing, God shows up in some way that I can't fully describe. And he reveals himself through his spirit in a way that says, that was a God moment. And maybe, maybe part of the glue of us as a church is the fact that we sing. And maybe if you haven't been singing, you should try it. And I can only say that with the utmost credibility because this is a little known fact. I cannot sing. But I like to throw other people under the bus. And I know Jim Bouton can't sing either. So I'm in good company. So when we're up here together doing whatever it is we're doing in the name of singing, maybe it's not Pavarotti as much as the grinding wheels of a train, but it's still something that God says, yeah, by grace I can even inhabit that. And the beautiful thing about doing it collectively is the fact that um, we don't even hear ourselves. We just hear the combined presence of one voice before the Lord in celebration and in praise. Could you imagine worship without singing? I mean, it just wouldn't be complete, would it? And singing is the part of the glue that holds you and I together. If I could just turn back to that graphic for, for one second, you'll notice that there are some people on the top of the, of the hill who are looking down and they're saying, how can I help other people up? And there's another person who's been helped up, but they want to also help up. And there's some of us who say, I want to help other people up. And it's just the desire that God's given us. Because we were there. We've been helped up. And there are people in front of us who are helping us up. And there are others who are saying, I can face this little valley with courage and with, uh, with passion. Because I know that there are those there, even though God has my back, there are those there on the horizontal dimension who will not let me fall. And then there's that guy or that lady who's standing there feeling the full weight of the challenge and not really sure what to do, immobilized in the uncertainty and the anxiety of the moment, having really no recourse but to just stand there in lostness. And when God sees that person, he says, I've also cast the rope to you. And maybe stuff has been pressing in on your life. Maybe the uphill uh, is looking a little too daunting for you, but you're not sure where to turn. Had you, have you considered the possibility that God has allowed that to happen so that you can, he can use that to get your attention and draw you closer to him. And if nothing else has been accomplished in the course of this sermon. I want you to know that that's what he does. But when he does it, he expects us, the church, to come alongside. And to help along the way. And that's why we're here. You looked at the three little snippets 
of animals in their various forms being attacked by normal predators. And you saw the response and the cohesiveness of those who under normal circumstances would find themselves uh, in in a situation where there would be impending doom. Yet, oddly enough, there's a cohesive group of people who rally around and defy all the circumstances that are in front of them and oppose those forces that would lead to your destruction. In a lot of ways, it's a metaphor for us on the horizontal level, doing what God's also accomplishing on the vertical level. As he calls, would you surrender your life to him? And as he calls you to look at those around you who are in need, would you just open your eyes, and if they're not clear and seeing, ask him to give you that understanding of what people are going through in your life, and that direction for how you can be that person that helps them along the way.